Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. What I'm going to do now is take a little time and for New Year's and stop in our series in Genesis and uh, we'll see how far we get today, but I'm going to do, do a kind of a New Year's Eve type message for us as we approach this new year, because there's going to be a lot of challenges I can see ahead this next year for a lot of Christians around the world and even here in America. So I thought the Lord put it on my heart to say, hey, why don't you do a New Year's message to get them prepared for this next year? So um, I might take today and I'll maybe next Sunday, and then we'll return back to Genesis where we left off with the Tower of Babel and continue to deal with that. So what the Lord led me to do is to turn my attention to Ecclesiastes. And he put that on my heart and I said, okay, so let's go for it. So where we ended up landing is Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. A very famous passage many people know, but to start unpacking it, it brings a lot of responsibility to us, especially in the challenges we face. I entitled it, What Time Is It For You? And this next year, you have to ask yourself those searching questions about what time is it for me? What do you mean about this? Well, as you understand and as you've experienced life, life constantly is a state in a state of flux. We're constantly changing, going from season to season. We're so, and I'm talking about seasons in our own life. And what we have found out is that life doesn't comply with our wishes and our wants and our desires. And it takes us down different paths that we don't like. And unfortunately, our sin nature rails against the new seasons that come into our life. And here's the thing that we all su- suffer under. We don't like change. We hate it. Our sin nature rails against it. We want security. We want a life that's consistent. We want a life that we're in control of, a life of safety, a life of comfort and certainty, and a life that I know the outcome of any risk I take. That's our expectation. We want life to be predictable, but it's not. And unfortunately, we get hit over the head a lot of times with the changing of seasons and not realizing that God is saying, I'm done with this season of life with you. I need to move you to another season. And that's hard. We've learned how to navigate in one season. We've learned how to do that, and we're fine with it. But then he changes the season on us, and that's what we resist. We actually sometimes go into protest not wanting that. So we're going to look at today and what Solomon had to say in the book of Ecclesiastes as he surveyed life. These are Solomon's journal notes, if you want to say. This is what he wrote down out of observation. Now, Solomon started well, but he didn't end well. And basically, he went wilder than a peach orchard boar hog is what he did. I mean, he, he started okay asking for wisdom, and God granted him wisdom. But man, he went on a terror, and he tried everything in life to to find satisfaction, happiness, and whatnot. He basically ends up in Ecclesiastes saying, I couldn't find anything. These are his observations about life under the sun. When we look at Ecclesiastes, you have to understand the context, life under the sun, which means this doesn't apply in heaven. This doesn't apply into the kingdom. It applies to a fallen world that we're living under. That's why he uses the term under the sun. Life as you know it, the reality that you and I are living in, right? doesn't mean that God can't intervene. It means just this is the course of life and Basically, what Solomon is trying to say in, in this passage is, if you don't accept the way life is, you're going to mess yourself up even more. If you get into protest mode, if you get into, I don't believe this is happening to me mode, uh, this should have happened, you know, you play that game, you're going to foul up your life. You're going to mess it up because you're going to get into those stages and you'll be stuck And you'll want to continue to go back to that season that you had. And God's saying, no, it's time to move on. I need you somewhere else. That's why in scriptures, you'll see a lot of the the patriarchs live in tents because they were constantly on the move. Sojourners, pilgrims, never set the roots down in any season of life. So they had to keep moving their tents wherever their flocks could find uh, food for them. And so they were in a constant state of movement. That's a 
a, a in one way, it, it happened literally, but it's a, a spiritual message. Don't stick your stakes too deep in this ground, especially in the season that you're in, because God's going to move you somewhere else eventually until he's done with your mission in life. That's hard. That's really hard. And sometimes he has to hit us over the head to wake us up because we become like a zombie in the season that we're in. And he says, no, no, I, I need you to move. And you see a lot of people that are stuck in the past. You know that. They're stuck in a season. They don't want to get out of it. And it really messes them up. I've seen people that get stuck in a season. They never get out of it. And they go through life depressed, messed up, and, and or a lot of times angry, angry at God. Angry that God had changed anything in their life and angry that they ha- they're being forced to change and they don't like it. So they get angry and bitter and they carry that bitterness to the grave. You don't want to become like that. But a lot of people do. Well, what God's trying to do, let's look at the verse verse and look what he says through Solomon to us. In verse one, it says this, to everything there is a season, where literally it means appointed time. There's an appointed time for everything, Okay. A time for every purpose, literally the Hebrew is saying every event, every activity or matter under heaven. That's the idea of under heaven, under the sun in our world. What he's saying here is this. There are appointed times that God has given you. These times are appointed. You're not, you have the responsibility, though, to respond to them. You have your own free will to respond to them, but the season is going to come to you. And you will not be able to stop the season. The only thing you can do is how to respond to the season. That's what our responsibility is. That's what God wants us to do, is to respond biblically. But if you don't accept that season, that appointed time, that activity that's been given to you, you won't be able to fulfill your mission in life that God has set out for you. And obviously everyone here, we want to, we want to handle life well. We want to manage life well. And one of the big things is to accept the season you're in and know it's just a season. It's not permanent, but it is a season. Well, here in this text, he goes through the different seasons and we have to apply them and, and properly respond to them. So as we face the new year coming and beyond that, there's going to be a lot of things thrown your way. A lot of challenges that most Christians have never faced before. Look at our culture, what we're having to face. Rampant sin. That sin is going to come at your doorstep with a family member, by the way. It's going to come right to your doorstep, and you're going to have to make a decision on what you're going to do and how you're going to deal with that. We've talked about that. You know, you're going to have somebody in your family come to you and say they're now gay or lesbian. Or now the new thing is they're transgender or whatever. That's coming to your door, whether you like it or not. And you're going to have to biblically deal with that. Or whatever. Someone's living together. They're shacking up. And now that's the new norm. No one, you know, everyone lives together in our society now. And that's the new norm. And that's coming to your door. It might even be your own adult children that do that to you. And you're going to see this more and more. So how do we prepare for this? How do we get ready for this? Well, he starts talking about it. Here's the first season he talks about in verse 2. He says this, There is a time to be born and a time to die. So those are seasons of life. I spent a lot of time in the hospitals, and even this week I was in the hospital. On one side of the hospital, there's the maternity ward, and there's babies being born, new life is springing up. And then I go to the other side of the hospital, in the ER or wherever, and there's people dying and sick. And it's it's in the same location, I see both aspects of life, birth and death, at the same time happening right there in the same place. What Solomon is saying for us is this, there are cycles of our lives, that seasons, we're going to go through great times when there's new life, birth, and there's times that we're going to have to deal with death, and it comes to us. Usually we don't have a problem with life, we have a problem with death. We don't know how to deal with that. And a lot of people, they, they, they pretend it doesn't happen. They bury it. They want to detach from their emotions. And so they don't actually grieve when death happens. And that death principle happens to all, all of us. 
It's coming to us. There's no way to get around it. It's because of the fall. We're sinners and we're going to die physically if the rapture doesn't happen. And what you see with people in dealing with death is they don't want to grieve because the pain of the grief and the loss is so hard, they don't want to embrace it. So the best way they deal with it is to push it down, act like it's not affecting them, detach from emotions, and then pretend like everything's hunky-dory. When someone does that, they're not grieving properly, and rest assured, it will come out later in their life in some weird behavior because they're not grieving. Anything you lose, any season of life that you lose something is a form of death, okay? Your kids get older, they, they leave the house, you become an empty nester. It's a form of death. You've lost something. You lost their childhood. They're gone now. They're adults. You have to grieve that. The Bible wants you to grieve it. The Bible wants you to embrace the pain, to understand what it feels like and to, to, to really go through that stage. Because if you don't, it will mess you up for the rest of life. But think about this. It gives a contrast to be born and, and to die. It's also given us a personal application in our own life. You know the date we, when you were born. You celebrate it on your birthday. But you don't know the date of when you're going to be called home. And it will happen to you if the rapture doesn't happen. It's, it's the, the stats on this is pretty good. It's a hundred percent. Okay. You're not, there's no way you're getting around it. It's happening. And what I think Solomon's trying to do here on a personal level, on a personal application is this. You know the day that you were born at someday you're going to die. And, and in between is where you live. That's your season. That's your life. However long it is, that's what God has given you. And when I do funerals, sometimes I'll, I'll use an illustration with the headstone that everyone can see around them at the, at the, the graveside. You'll see on people's gravestones the day they were born, and then you'll see a dash, and then the day they died. Have you noticed the dash on these gravestones? That dash, that little dash on that gravestone represents their entire life. Everything they did, everything they were about is represented by a dash on a gravestone. You are currently right now in the dash. Okay? Thank God you're in the dash because it means you're alive. Okay? Amen for that. But understand what Solomon's trying to say. You're responsible for that dash and how you live it. Now, here's what you're going to see. And I'll use an illustration about this. Let's pretend the bank calls you up and says, hey, I have an anonymous donor. And this anonymous donor wants to give you 86,400 pennies a day into your bank account. And you're like, what's that? Well, if you do the math, and you're like, all right, some anonymous donor wants to give me basically $874 a day. And I do the math per week and 52 weeks per year. So that's about $6,000 per week, $315,000 per year. That's pretty good. I mean, I don't have to work anymore if I'm making $315,000 by someone just depositing that in my bank account. But then the banker comes back, oh, yeah, let me tell you the one stipulation that you must do. The one stipulation is this. You must spend all the money that day. You can't carry anything over. You can't borrow from the next day. You have to spend the entire balance that day. Or if you don't, if you don't spend it, the bank will cancel whatever sum you have if you fail to use it. So if, basically, if you don't spend it, you forfeit it. Wow. Bring it to us about time and about life and death. Time is like that. Understand that God gives you 86,400 seconds per day to live your life. Basically, and you get 24 hours in, in a day, and you know that, but the stipulation still applies to you and I. Nothing can be carried over. 
You can't borrow on the next, the, the previous day. And the day cannot be extended to 26 hours or 27 hours. It's only 24. And you are given precisely 24 hours and you choose how you are going to spend it. And you know, and I know, we have watched people waste their life on piddling around, doing nothing that has eternal value. And as we look forward to this next year, you have to make a conscious effort that I'm going to put my, my time and energy into things that matter, into things that have eternal value. What did Jesus say about heaven? He says, store up in treasure in heaven where moth and rust uh, do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. Do things in these next seasons of life that are coming to you that have eternal value. Quit doing things that don't matter. That's a lot of our time. We get caught up in the world, and we. if you look back in your life, you say, man, I shouldn't have wasted my time on that. I shouldn't have wasted my time on that. I shouldn't have wasted time on that person either because they're just wasting your valuable time. And so the only way you get a handle on your dash is to start prioritizing things and really understanding that, hey, we're in the last days. We could be called home at any point in time. I need to start doing things that have eternal value. I don't want to go to heaven with no reward. So that's what Solomon's saying on a personal level. He goes, you got to deal with that season. Then the next season he talks about, and this is verse 2, to be, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. Now, he's using an agricultural illustration in this, this season. And basically, it's seed time and harvest. The beginning when you plant and then when you harvest. Okay, so you have that whole duration in between. It's kind of like being born and dying. It's, it's the same thing. But he's doing a little twist on this. And what he's trying to say is, especially in Israel, there a lot of agrarian society was there, especially in the Middle East. And the implication was this. There are seasons in life that you're going to have to take a risk. Every farmer knows, even as advanced as we are right now, that if you plant something, you're not in full control. As any farmer will tell you, you could have diseases, uh, bugs, you can have funguses, all this stuff, bad weather. You are not in control when you plant something. And you, you, every farmer will tell you that, even as sophisticated as we are. And what Solomon was using is using an agrarian example of that when you plant that seed, you may or may not get a harvest. You're taking a risk by doing that, planting a seed, whether it's wheat or a tree or whatever it is. And what he was trying to say is the implication is you don't have full control, but just because you don't have full control doesn't mean you shouldn't go out there on faith and take a risk. Those who refuse to take risk are like the guy in the parable who buried his talent because he was afraid of being harshly judged by the, by the Messiah. And he told them, well, if you're not willing to risk, and I'm paraphrasing, you're not willing to risk the talent I gave you, then why didn't you put it on uh, into the bank for the bankers to make money on that? You know who the bankers are in that parable? It's those who are doing ministry. If you're not willing to do anything about the kingdom or the spreading the gospel, then why don't you invest in people who are? You could have spent your money that way. If you're not going to do anything about it, give it to those who will do something with it, is what Jesus was trying to say. But what you see with a lot of people, even Christians, they don't operate on faith. They just don't. They, in their lives, operate if every T can be crossed, every I is dotted. If they can do that and and then get this, make sure they get 100% assurance that if they do something, it will work out. That's crazy. You can't live like that, but yet people do. They will not make a move in their life without 100% assurance. Can't live like that. Because ask yourself this. If you have to have 100% assurance in what God is leading you to do, and you demand 100% assurance what God wants you to do, 
he's not gonna give it to you because it would eliminate your faith. God will give you enough evidence to act, but he will not give you so much evidence that it would eliminate your faith. He just simply is not gonna do that. So whatever he's leading you to do this next year, I don't know, ministry-wise or whatever, take your family uh, during a certain path or whatever God's leading you to do, accept the uncertainty. He will give you enough to make a decision, but the rest of it you're going to have to take on faith. Yes, do your due diligence. Make sure you, 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 you get as much information as you can. But at the end of the day, you're never going to be 100% sure. You're just going to have to go out and do it. If you don't, and you play the game of life safe and don't take risks, you will not achieve anything in this life. All the risk takers, whether it's secular or Christians, all the risk takers are going to fail. There's no doubt about it. There's, but yet they will succeed eventually. They learn from their mistakes and they move on and they do what God wants them to do. And I'm going to tell you this. That's what Satan's going to hold you back on. He's going to tell you, don't do it. It's not sure. God won't be there for you. He won't provide for you. Don't do it. It's too much of a risk. You can't put your family in this kind of situation. Watch. He'll say that to you. And you have to push past your fear and say, God led me to do this. I'm going to do it. Whether I'm 80% sure or 70% sure, I'm going to do this. So he... He, he attacks the risk averse, and then he moves to another uh, contrast in verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. Now, let's, let's focus on a time to kill. Pretty simple in this. To kill doesn't mean murder. The Ten Commandments says, thou shall not murder. It doesn't say, thou shall not kill. So according to the Bible, killing is allowed under certain conditions. War, self-defense, uh, you know, executing a criminal, that's allowable under scripture. So this idea that, you know, you know, they, they make accusations against us Christians saying, well, how come you want to protect the life of a baby, but yet you'll execute somebody? Well, that's different. The baby's innocent. The murderer is guilty. And I have the right by God to execute him under, you know, our government laws. And so Solomon talks about that as a contrast, and then he goes, then he moves into, and then there's, there's times to do that, and there's times to heal, times to heal, okay? So what, what does he mean by that? Well, in that sense, he's talking about healing from people hurting you, okay? Or hurt, you hurting yourself or life hurting you. There's three ways you're going to get hurt. Other people, yourself, and just simply life in general. You're going to be hurt. And there are times when, when you have to have some healing time, where you have to, to heal your trauma or whatnot. And you got to remember, all of us have went through a lot of stuff in life. A lot of bad stuff has happened, whether it's a childhood, 20s, divorces, you name it. It's, it's a lot of trauma, a lot of, a lot of hurt. We carry a lot of hurt. But if you don't heal from that in the proper season, you will become a toxic person. And no one wants to do that. So when you're looking at your life and all the things that happened to you, whether you brought it on yourself or not, you have to process that in a biblical way. You have to think through those things in biblical terms. Otherwise, you won't process it correctly. You'll just bury it. And that trauma will continue to drive what you and I do if you don't deal with it. And you'll see it. You'll see people who are driven by, by trauma. It's like people who, I don't know, they've had some disruption in their life. And now they can't go into crowded rooms. They can't go into a movie theater. And if they do go into a movie theater, they have to sit next to the exit to plan their escape. And they sit there in the movie theater thinking, if something happens, this is what I'm going to do. Okay, I'm safe. I'm safe. I'm safe. There's a door right there. I can go out that door if something should happen. Do you really want to live that way? That's called paranoia. And yet people will do that because they had some type of trauma that they haven't dealt with. And so now it's affected their whole life to where they're antisocial. 
They're afraid to go in, in, in crowds or movie theaters or whatnot. You think, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I know, but that's because of trauma. And people do this. They rehearse things in their heads about what could possibly happen because they're afraid. They were traumatized. It was a child or whatnot. So we have to deal with that. There's a time to heal for that. Let's move to the next category. He goes in 3B, a time to break down. And, and let's, let's deal with that. And then he's going to talk about a time to build up. A time to break down. There are times and seasons that you're going to go through where God is going to send a wrecking ball right through your life. And you may, by, you may be in the wrecking ball season or you may have just come out of one. But a lot of times God has to wake us up by sending a wrecking ball and just that wrecking ball just destroys the patterns we've established, the routines we've established, the mindset we've established. And he has to break down complacent zombie Christians. You ever seen zombie Christians? I know they don't, they don't, they don't go to our church. They go to other churches. Because you're not zombies. But the zombies are out there. Have you seen them? They claim the name of Christ, but they're zombies. They're out to lunch. They don't know what you and I are talking about right now. They're in another world. We call them Laodicean believers. But the zombie Christians are in this protective bubble that nothing could possibly happen to them, that, uh, you know, because of their wealth, hashtag I'm blessed by Jesus type of mentality, and they think they're doing great. That's what we call the Laodicean believer. And you know what God does to wake them up? He sends a wrecking ball to them. They'll lose their jobs. They'll lose everything they have. They'll lose family members and death. Not that God causes bad things, but he will allow it to wake them up. And I don't want to be woken up by a wrecking ball. It's because they're so out of it that they don't get the promptings of the Holy Spirit to change something to, hey, you're doing something wrong. And so he wakes them up by breaking them down. And and he breaks them down. What is he breaking? He's breaking their pride. And he'll break their pride down to build them back up. But first he's got to break someone down because he has to break down their image of themselves, their image of God, and their image of reality. He has to break that down. So that's why a lot of people, when the wrecking ball comes in their life, they instantly feel that they've lost control. Good. And that's a good thing because God's trying to say, you're not in control. Quit thinking you are. I'm in control. And I'm going to break you down so you admit that. And that's hard pill to swallow. But you and I are not made to live as if we're God in control of our world. He wants us to think about him. So what, so once he breaks us down, what does he do? Now Solomon gives the contrast and a time to build up. So God doesn't leave us broken. He builds us up from being broken, but he has to break us down so we can see our true self, what we're really thinking, what we're really made out of. And you remember the scene in the gospels with Peter. Remember Peter? He's boasting the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. I'll die for you. Okay, remember he made that bold statement, I'll die for you? That was a statement of that he agapes Jesus. He agapes Jesus so much, agape is self-sacrificing love, that he's willing to die for Jesus. How did that work out for Peter? You remember the scene? What did he do? He denied him three times, and the last one went to a little girl and says, I know your accent, you're a Galilean, you're one of his. And, and then Peter starts swearing unto the Lord that he doesn't know the Messiah. Failure. He was broken down at that point in time. And why did Jesus do it? Because Jesus told him, you're going to deny me, but I'm going to restore you. Remember that? He's told. He had to break Peter down. And once Peter is broken down, then Jesus restores him later on. You remember what Jesus said to him. Peter, do you agape me? And Peter, I, I guarantee, I, I just thinking about the whole scene. I, I'm sure his head's down and he's just feeling horrible. And he says, no, Lord. Uh, yes, Lord. I phileo you. 
He didn't use the word agape. Jesus used the word agape. Do you agape me, willing to die for me? But Peter had been broken down to see his true self, that he didn't have agape love for the Lord. He only had Philadelphia love, which is brotherly love, not willing to die for you. Restores Peter, and as you know, what Christian tradition holds to is that Peter was crucified upside down for the Lord, and eventually Peter showed that agape love. But he had to get broken down to see where he was at, and then Christ built him up. That's what the wrecking ball does in our lives. It breaks us down, see who we are, and then from there, Christ can build us back up to our true self and our true identity. Maybe you're in that season. I don't know. But if the wrecking ball comes in your life, the first thing you should do is not say, I don't want the wrecking ball. Is The first thing you should say is, okay, what am I not seeing? Where am I at here? If he had to get a wrecking ball to club me over the head with, uh, there's something not right. Then he moves into verse 4, another contrast. A time to weep. A time to mourn, he says. And he contrasts that with laughing and dance. But let's talk about the time to weep and a time to mourn. Again, he's dealing with grief. And he is saying, God will put a season on weeping and mourning on you. And you need to accept that season of grief. You need to embrace it, not run from it. And I talked a little bit about this, but they've studied grief, and there's five stages to it. And what normally should happen is people are initially shocked that this is happening to them. Then they get depressed, then they get angry, then they bargain. And bargaining means that they, they try to, what, I should have done something different, or I could have done this, or I could have done that. It's kind of, bar, it's called bargaining. And then the last phase is acceptance. So in general, again, this is not, you know, the same for everybody, but in general, there's basically five stages of grief. Sometimes people are experiencing three or four at the same time, but nonetheless, there are stages. Well, when you look at it, you can see that the five stages make sense because they lead into another and they lead to the end called acceptance. They accept what happened to them. Now, here's the deal. God's not saying the pain's going to go away in grief. He's not saying that. That hole in your heart's always going to be there. What we're saying about this is in acceptance, you get back to your normal self, to where you can function, you can deal with life as it comes. But if you get stuck in one of those five stages, shock, there's a lot of people that are still in shock. They can't get out of shock. They can't believe this is happening to them. Or depression, and that depression will continue to sink deeper and deeper, and they will never get out of it. Or anger, where it, they will become so toxic, you won't even want to be around them. If they get stuck in those cycles, woe unto them. They can't function normally anymore. Their being stuck in that phase of grief will inhibit them from being more like Christ. Their growth completely stops. It just stops. It can't move any further. So if you're in a stage of grief right now, go through it all. Embrace the pain. Embrace all the emotions to get to that point of acceptance so you can live a normal life. It's not life as it was. It's just a normal life from there so that you can be functional and be rewarded for continuing in the ministry of what God's called you to do. It's a hard one. I get it. And the, the, the holidays don't make anything better. They exasperate the whole issue. So, I know it. I've talked to some of you that are dealing with grief, and it is a difficult thing, especially the holidays. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel if you'll accept the season of life you're in. If you go into protest mode, my friend, that's the wrong path. And then he goes into a time to laugh and a time to dance. Now, as you recall, David danced before the Lord when he was joyous. Let me tell you this. Unless you weep and mourn properly, you will never be able to laugh again. You will never be able to rejoice again if you don't weep and mourn properly. If you ever see people that have went, that are stuck in a stage of grief and they can't get out of it, they lose the vitality for life. They want to give up. They want to stop life. There's nothing to celebrate anymore. All is lost. All hope is gone. And when someone starts giving up, 
they start dying. They start dying. It's a weird thing that I have noticed that when someone gives up hope, when the minute that hope's gone, stuff starts triggering in their body physically. It's the weirdest thing. You can see people who are fighting cancer. If they have the strength to fight it, they'll fight it. But if someone gives up, they'll die quickly. It's like once the mind resolves itself and the soul resolves itself to hopelessness, the body just reacts to it, and then they die. So my point, what Solomon is trying to make is, if you really want to enjoy life and laugh and be able to be joyful again, you have to grieve. Because if you don't grieve, what you'll do is detach from your emotions, and you won't feel. Have you ever been around someone that's detached from their emotions? They simply can't feel anything. You tell them a sob story, you tell them something that's going on with somebody, and they're not even affected by it. Do you know why? They refuse to allow their emotions to feel any pain. So they keep them at distance. They don't want to feel the pain because if they feel the pain of the other person, they have to feel the pain in themselves, and they won't do it. They they keep it at bay. If you want to live the abundant life, and I'm I'm not talking about a worldly life, the abundant life that Jesus gives... You must properly process grief. It is a big hurdle that you have to get through. Verse 5, a time to cast away stones. Let's talk about that, and he's going to talk about gathering stones. A time to cast away stones. This is interesting. You're like, what does this mean? What's a Hebraism? It's It's from the Hebrew mindset, the Hebrew culture. Let me show you this field. This is an average Israeli field, even today. If you go to most of their agriculture areas, their fields look like this. Now, when they start planting stuff, guess what they have to do? They have to clear the fields of the rocks. There's an ancient Jewish myth that said that when God was creating the world and he was scattering the rocks, he gave the rocks all to one angel, and that angel came to earth and he was going to scatter all the rocks to all the different locations around the planet. Well, he came past Israel and he tripped on a rock and spilt all the rocks on Israel. Okay? <laughs> That's just Jewish tradition that's, you know, and, and if you've ever been to Israel, you get it, man. It is so rocky. It's just, it's ridiculous. It, it, there's rocks everywhere. And they're good metaphors and stuff, but what they have in their fields is a bunch of rocks. So the average Israeli now has to plow those things. They have, to, they have tractors now that get the rocks out of the fields, but then they'll pile up the rocks on the side and whatnot. Okay. But in the ancient world, When you see these rocks and you had to plant stuff, you had to physically take those rocks out yourself by hand, okay? And so so no matter how much land you had, it was a very arduous task of removing the rocks from the field, okay? Well, what does it mean then with that being this case? It says a time to cast away stones. In that society, enemies of Israel or enemies of anyone in the Middle East would cover their fields with stones in a what we call a scorched earth policy. So if Assyria or somebody invaded Israel, they would go to their agricultural lands and throw rocks all in their field and make it, you know, unplantable, that they couldn't use it by just continuing to throw rocks in the field to mess them up. And so kind of a, we call it a scorched earth policy. But... What ended up happening is, if you wanted to render a person's field useless and make it hard for them, you threw rocks into their fields. Now, what does he mean then? That's a a negative, right? What does Solomon mean then? There is a season where you cast rocks into someone's field and make it harder for them. That's interesting. Maybe you're in this season, but I'll tell you what the secret is. It is a metaphor for making someone's life difficult. That you and I are to make someone's life difficult. What do you mean by that? Well, it's simple. If you go to the New Testament, this is explained, and it's called discipline. It's called consequences and limitations being put on individuals for their crazy behavior. And when someone who claims the name of Christ is behaving in unchristian ways, we are to cast rocks into their field. 
What do you mean? This is the most the Christian world doesn't get this. You are to levy consequences and limitations on that person for their behavior. Yes. Someone's in gross immorality. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, you are not to eat with them. You're not even to have a meal with them. If they claim the name of Christ and are in gross immorality, you don't eat with them. How do you think most Christians handle that? They don't do it. They refuse to cast rocks into someone's field. They don't want to make the person's life harder. But what is the purpose of making the person's life harder when they're in immorality? What is the purpose of putting consequences and limitations on a person who claims the name of Christ and is in gross sin? What is the purpose? To redeem them. To get them out of the sin. To show, hey, the decisions you're making have consequences. You're living with somebody. That's wrong. You name the name of Christ. You're living with somebody. I'm going to make your life harder now. And I'm going to levy consequences against you. Oh, you claim to be gay or lesbian. I'm going to make my, your life harder on you for the decisions you make because you claim to be a Christian. Now, again, I'm not putting the caveat on the world. I'm putting the caveat on what Paul says. It's only on Christians that you're to do this. Okay? The world, we don't, we don't have a dog in the race with them. I'm talking about Christians. This would be the time when you cast rocks into their field. Make it hard for them. A lot of our folks have to exclude people of their family this Christmas. Did you know that? They couldn't invite other people in their family who claim the name of Christ because they're in sin. And it was a difficult Christmas for them. But they said, you're not coming over, man, until you repent, until you stop doing what you're doing. We can't allow you over. That's tough, isn't it? But it's the only way you can get them back. Imagine someone in gross immorality and nothing changes in their life. They have the same relationship with mom and dad. They have the same relationships with cousins and nephews. They have the relationship, the same relationship in the church because the church accepts it. Why would they have any motive to repent? There's no motive because, hey, I can do a sin and everyone's accepting me. I can just keep rolling. That's a motivator for them to continue in the sin. So when Christians don't levy consequences and limitations on the individual, they're pushing them more towards the sin instead of redeeming them. Mm. It's a tough one. I know it's tough. And you'll get the backlash from your so-called other Christian friends saying, I can't believe you're doing that. Jesus would never do it. Jesus would just show them love. Jesus is the one who wrote this. I don't know what you're talking about. Jesus gave Matthew 18. Treat him like a tax collector. That's Jesus saying, I thought. That's in red letters, by the way. Right? He said it, not me. Wow. I don't know where some Christians are at, man. It's just weird. I know you're dealing with them too, and you get the back the backlash from them, but you know what? That's how... That's how Laodicean they are. They don't even get it. Anyway, there's a time to cast stones, and there's a time to gather stones. What do you mean by that? Well, gathering stones, obviously, if you had a field, it's the same metaphor. You would have to take those rocks from that field and gather them, and you would either make sometimes brick walls. Like in this picture, this is what they do with the rocks. They gather the rocks, and they make sheep pens, or they would make watchtowers out of the rocks. Um, so they would actually do something with the rocks in the field. They would be productive in that sense. And so there's a time where you're cleansing your field. If that makes sense? What do you mean? Cleansing your field means that, especially at a New Year's time, you're looking at life and you're looking at how your life is and you're saying, are there anything in my life that's making me stumble? Maybe you have a sin that keeps kicking you in the pants and you can't have victory over. Well, you have to first then ask yourself, how is my field? Am I putting myself in a situation that always makes me stumble into the sin? If I'm an alcoholic, I don't go to the bars. It's too much of a temptation. Or I, I can't hang around with people that drink because it's too much of a temptation or whatever it is. 
Or these buddies over here are doing drugs. Well, I used to do drugs, but I, I got to stay away from those guys. I got to stay away from them. You have to look at your own field and see what's causing you to stumble. If you're a control freak, I got to control my environment. Otherwise, I feel out of control. Well, that's a, you're stumbling on you trying to be God. And you have to clear that field out or whatever it is. So the idea of clearing a field is brought to light in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Look at this passage. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let's leave that up there for a second. Notice there's two things in this passage. Lay aside every weight. Okay? A weight can hold you back from running the race, and a weight can make you stumble. Now, notice it's it's contrasted with sin. There's obviously sin that ensnares us. We don't want to do that. But most people don't get the first part. It's the every weight that makes us stumble. We'll elaborate a little bit on this. Weights are neutral issues that you're, deal, you're doing in your life that you don't consider a sin, and they are not sin on the face of it. But if it slows you down in your walk with the Lord and it makes you stumble then that weight is now being used against you. And you have to think about that. That's a hard one to ponder because it's not just blatant sin. There are good things you can do that actually work against you. Okay? So, for instance, guys are notorious for this. We get into hobbies and we let that hobby go to an excess. Guys are notorious about this. Guys will get involved in marathon running or they get in triathlon running or whatever it is. or It doesn't matter what the issue is. It's always some athletic thing that they're endeavoring in, hunting, whatever. All those are good things. And, you, and you're like, what's wrong with exercising? What's wrong with that? Nothing. See, that's why you can't see it. There's nothing wrong with riding a bike or running or swimming or doing some extracurricular activity. It's fine. What's wrong with golf? What's wrong with honey? Right? But I've seen guys take this to an excess where it starts dominating their life and then it ends up stealing time from their family. So let's pretend you're going to compete in a triathlon. Do you know how much required exercising that takes on a daily basis to do that? Maybe five hours a day to train for that? 20, 30 hours a week to train for those things? How are you going to do that when you have three kids and a wife and a dog and bills to pay and you're working at the same time? How are you going to do that? I just want to know. How are you going to pull that one off? Well, I'm going to go to Hawaii and I'm going to run in the triathlon there in Hawaii. Okay. But what are you stealing from your family in order to do that? You see what I'm saying? It's not as obvious because the exercising is not a sin. It's just not as obvious. But if you can start digging down, you realize, oh my goodness, someone has a hobby that's taking away time from their family. Or how about workaholism? No one's going to go against a guy who's really working really hard to provide for his family because he's providing money for his family, providing them the things they need. Well, what if the dude's working 100 hours and never sees his family? Ever. I went to school with a lot of guys that ended up on Wall Street. They all decided to go to Wall Street for some way. I guess their mindset was this. They're going to be a millionaire by the age of 40. And they all went to Wall Street. All the guys I played with, they all went to Wall Street. I guess it's very competitive, and so it just stays in the same mindset with them, I guess. It's, it feeds that competitiveness. When I talked to some of them, I said, hey, man, what are you up to, man? What's work like? Oh, man, it's a dog-eat-dog world here in Wall Street, and everyone's jarring for position. I said, tell me what hours you're pulling. 120 per week. I said, apparently you're not going home. No, we sleep in the office. I said, you're sleeping in the office? No, we live at the office, Brandon. We got to make our million dollars by 40. Gotcha. But you're not going to have a family. You're not going to have kids. You're going to be that millionaire, no doubt about it. And a lot of them achieved it. They are now millionaires, but they have 
Zero family. Because why? Their family were stocks and bonds. That's what they gave themselves to, and that's what they have. And I'm thinking right now, I haven't talked to them in a long time. I want to say, how's that working out for you, man? You got the money. You achieved what you wanted to achieve. But you have no one to share it with. You have, no, no woman in their right mind would have married you working 120 hours a week. You don't have kids. What is this all about, man? Are you happy now with your money and you're alone? I haven't talked to them lately about that. I don't know where they're at. It's been a while since I made the call. But they have sold out for money. And so coming back to this, and we see these seasons in life, okay? And let me end on this. We're going to do part two next week, obviously. When these seasons of life come to you, they're not fun a lot of times. Sometimes, a lot of times, there's a lot of of pressure and anxiety before we face it. What is God's message through all these seasons of life? It could be summed up in what I read this week, and it, it went something like this. When we hear the roar of the lion in the jungle, what do we normally do? We run. And what we're learning from Solomon, obviously via God telling us, is that when these seasons of life come, they will be like a roaring lion in the jungle. But instead of running from that lion, run toward that lion in the jungle and take on the new season that God has prepared for you. He wants you to be there. He wants you in the new season. He doesn't want you pining for the past and staying the past. Move towards the lion in the jungle. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.